Good morning. Our reading this morning comes from Genesis 28, 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. You might not know this about me, but I love talking to old people. <laughs> and by old, I got to do this right, Josh. I mean people that have more years behind them than ahead of them. There's, there's something about conversation with someone who's in that place in life that I love. There, there are times they ramble. There are times they tell the same story over and over again. But there's a certain perspective, isn't there? There's a certain wisdom born of experience that can't be found anywhere else. And that's, that's certainly been my experience in this church. I was thinking this week of how Darla has showed me how to pray for my boys. Of how Barb has showed me how to fear the Lord. How you, Jack, have taught me how to love my wife and serve my wife. And this weekend we remember Joanne with you and we miss her with you. 
And I was thinking, Doug, about how you are teaching me to long for heaven and not make this earth my treasure. We're rich because of people like that. And one of my favorite questions to ask an older person goes like this. Tell me about some of the defining moments in your life. Talk to me about moments in your life, situations that, that changed or altered your course or direction, experiences that transformed your character, situations that, that you can't forget even if you wanted to because those are the kinds of moments that alter somebody's life, right? Defining moments. I was thinking about some of my own this week. I remember hearing as a young boy that a Colombian judge had denied my parents' adoption application. I remember standing in a church auditorium in, in Ciudad Juarez, weeping for the first time over the reality of my sin against the Lord. I remember learning that God had provided a scholarship for me to go to college. I remember locking eyes with my wife, Eliza, who I will not look at right now, on our first date. I remember listening on the phone to how God had radically saved my younger brother, David. I remember holding, why did I make this list? I remember holding our firstborn son, Ethan, overwhelmed by God's power. Like, like where did this come from? I remember really difficult conversations with our former senior pastor that led to me assuming his position. Some of my defining moments are sad. Some of mine are very happy. Some of them are this crazy, cannot separate mixture of both. I think I'm not alone in that regard. And I don't share those things to, to merely make us collectively emotional. <laughs> I share those things because Jacob's experience at Bethel was one of those defining moments. One of those do not forget kind of moments. And there really are two big ones in his life, okay? The first one is at Bethel when he's leaving the land of Canaan. And the next one is like 20 years later when he's returning to the land of Canaan at Peniel. And in both cases... Please hear this. What makes those moments defining and life-altering is the fact that Jacob has an encounter with the living God. That's what made them defining. That's what made them life-altering. And that reminds us, friends, that the God who created the world and everything in it is not isolated or removed from creation. He's, he's not a God who hides himself from us. He's not a God who made the world and then said, peace out. He's a God who reveals himself to us, right? He's not a God who hides himself. He's a God who reveals himself to us. Isaiah 40 verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be what? Revealed. Praise God for that, right? Revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
In other words, God, God isn't just intimately involved in the affairs of men. He loves to break in to the affairs of men in order to reveal his goodness and secure our devotion. That's the main point of this passage, really. What I just said, the Lord delights to break into our lives. Doesn't he love to do this? In order to reveal his goodness and secure our devotion. That's what he's up to. Because this story, Jacob's experience, isn't just a story, folks. It's, it's a paradigm. Okay, it's a pattern. It's a case study of how God related to his people in the very beginning and is still relating to us today. Why? Because our creator loves to break in and reveal himself to us as his people. Praise God that he's like that, right? He doesn't hide. He makes himself known. He's a, he's a revealing God, a self-disclosing God. And I think Jacob's experience at Bethel, these verses that Jesse just read, help us answer three really important questions about God's self-revelation. Okay, so here are the questions. Three questions about God's self-revelation. First, when does God reveal himself? Second, how does God reveal himself? And third, why does God reveal himself? When does he reveal himself? How does he reveal himself? And why does God reveal himself? So let's start with question one. When does God reveal himself? Okay, here's, here's my answer from this passage. Point one, the Lord reveals himself when we least expect it. When does God reveal himself? He's not a hiding God, okay? So when does he show up? When, when does he break in? When does he say, look at who I am, I'm right here? When we least expect it. Where do we see this? A little background will help here, okay? So the, the impetus, the, the starting point motivation for Jacob's journey from Beersheba to Haran, I would argue, seems like anything but a recipe for experiencing God. Why do I say that? Because Jacob is a liar. He's a deceiver. And in Genesis 27, he pulled off a big time, got your name in the Bible kind of deception. <laughs> he deceived his father Isaac, right, into thinking that he was Esau. The whole thing was his mom's idea, but he did it. And so Isaac pronounces a blessing, the firstborn blessing, on Esau, when in reality, it's on Jacob. He stole his brother's blessing. And so naturally, Esau is incensed. And what does he do? He says, I'm going to kill you. You're, you're a dead man, Jacob. And of course, mom, who's always sort of hovering around and hearing everything everyone's saying, she catches wind of the plan and she manipulates Isaac, her husband, into sending Jacob off to Haran under this guise of he needs to find a wife. Well, he does, but he's also going to die if he stays here. It's, it's a pretty sordid tale, right? I mean, it's the kind of tale you read, the story you read, where, where everybody's throwing mud, nobody comes out clean, 
And they're all sinning, the whole family, on multiple levels, both toward God and toward one another, including Jacob. All that to say, when you look at verse 10 of chapter 28, and we read, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, we know something about why he did that. It wasn't because he was looking to experience God, or know God, or, or encounter God. He, did, he wasn't embarking on some sort of spiritual pilgrimage. I mean, far from it right? He messed up big time and now he's running for his life. There's nothing godly about that. Look look at verse 11. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night. Why did he do that? Because he came to his senses, realized the error of his ways, and stopped to do business with God. No, because the sun had set. Ah, there's an idea. I better stop because the sun's going down. You know, you didn't have our LED headlamp things going on. What's the point? The point is that nothing about his situation is planned. Right? Why am I stopping? Uh, Because the sun went down. Where am I? A certain place? I don't know. Nothing about the situation's plan, nothing about the situation feels spiritual, and nothing about the situation feels comfortable. Look at verse 11. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. I wonder how many of you can relate to Jacob. Not, Not because you, I don't think any of you sleep on stones, but you survey the recent events in your life and you don't see God anywhere. If anything is calling the shots right now, governing the course of your life, it's not God, seeking God, encountering God, loving God. It's your sin. It's the, it's the ways you've messed up. That's why things are the way they are. And like Jacob, as a result of that, you've lost what's familiar to you. You've lost what's comfortable, and you know it's in large part your own fault. But, but that awareness, though true, isn't comforting. It just compounds your sense of isolation, your loneliness. You're walking toward Haran, but that's all you know. Your present situation has no sense of significance, no sense of meaning or purpose. Jacob's decision to stop at a certain place, an unnamed place, it points us, friends, to those kinds of psychological realities. He's alienated. He's uncomfortable. His present place in the world feels insignificant, godless. That's that's the underlying vibe. Even the darkness of the hour, the sun setting, it reflects the spiritual darkness in his heart. That's the setup. But that night, something happens. Jacob has a dream. Look at verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Now, Genesis helps us here. Whenever we're told somebody's dreaming, we should be thinking, maybe it wasn't a literal ladder. 
right? The way dreams function in the Bible. Maybe this is a symbol. Maybe it represents something. Well, in fact, it does. It represents a point of connection between heaven and earth. A point of connection between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. So for those of you who are sci-fi nuts, which I am not and will never be, shout out to Matthew Giannini. Sorry, pal. It's like a portal. So I think. Right, Kevin? Okay. It's like a portal between two different worlds, a place where you can cross between them. So Jacob sees the angels of God ascending and descending on it, right? And that in and of itself is pretty remarkable. But look at verse 13. It's not all he sees. Verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it. The Lord stood above it. Okay, now before we go on to what the Lord says, I want us to stop there. Why? Because we need to think very carefully about the magnitude of what just happened. Very carefully. In an unnamed place. A place that feels, as I said, completely random, insignificant, and painful. The creator of the universe breaks in and reveals himself to a liar who just set off a bomb in his family and who is running for his life. That's what just happened. And that's stunning. Why? Because it's not what we expect, right? We expect God to break into the lives of good people. We expect God to break into someone's life when they're what? Looking for him, searching for him, asking for him, pleading with him, Lord Jesus, reveal yourself to me. That's what we expect God to do. Jacob is doing none of that right? He's not asking. He's not pleading. He's not praying. He's living in random, meaningless. I guess I'll stop here because the sunset. Where am I? A certain place. I don't know. All I know is I just set off a bomb and I better get out of here. He's mired in the consequences of sin. And that church, that is the moment, the exact moment that God chose to break. That that teaches us something. Something profound about the Lord. He doesn't reveal himself to those who are self-assured in their perceived worthiness. It's not who he is. To those who think they have their life together. Who does God reveal himself to? He reveals himself to those who are unworthy, whose lives are a mess. And we are grateful for that. Amen. By the way, you all can do that as much as you want when I preach, okay? Not not because we're looking for him, right? Not, Not because we're interested in him, waiting up through all the night for him to appear. No, why not? Why does God reveal himself? Jumping ahead, but it's connected. It's because he's interested in us. He's looking for us because he's a merciful God. Mark chapter 2, verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, 
But sinners, why is that good news? Because we're all Jacobs, right? That was the point of last week. We're all deceivers. We've all rebelled against God's authority. That's the bad news. So what's the good news? The good news is that we serve a God who delights to reveal himself when we least expect it and least deserve it. That's the good news. And that reality, that characteristic of the eternal God should have, as I see it, at least two profound effects on our expectations of God. Okay, so here they are. Let me quickly mention these. First, it should have a profound effect on your expectations for your own life. Okay? Don't look at your situation or your sin or the mess that you are in and see those three things and conclude this is the last place God will show up. Don't do that. Why not? Because that is precisely where God loves to show up. Right? Praise God his thoughts are not our thoughts. Praise God he doesn't say, well, because you don't expect me to show up and you're not interested or thinking about me at all. All right. No. It's when we're most desperate. Right? Most lost, most bound in hopelessness and, and meaninglessness that God is eager to break in and reveal himself. That's the when with our God. That's the first implication. Here's the second, okay? Not just effect on your expectations of yourself and when God's going to reveal himself to you, but let's think about the effect on our expectations for other people, right? How often do you look at somebody else's life? You look at the mess they brought on themselves and you might not say this because you're street smart, you don't want to embarrass yourself, but you conclude in your mind, this situation can't go anywhere good. Oh well. I mean, they had their chance, they clearly botched it, so it's just downhill from here. <laughs> Praise God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. That, that may very well prove, friend, to be the exact situation that God has been waiting for to break in. And your child, and your spouse, and your family member or friend, we need to repent of arrogantly sizing up situations and forming expectations based on the conduct of man instead of humbly evaluating situations and forming expectations in light of the character of God. We need to repent of that. So when does God reveal himself? Question one, point one. He reveals himself when we least expect it. Okay, here's the second question. How does the Lord reveal himself? If he reveals himself when he least expect it, when he actually does it, what does he do? Point two, and this is no less amazing, friends. The Lord reveals himself by displaying his goodness. Think about that. Whenever he reveals himself, he does it in order to show us something about himself. In other words, God isn't just interested in you acknowledging the reality of his existence. Like, okay, I get it. You're real. Well, he is real, and the bidding starts there, but God reveals himself so we can delight in the goodness of his character. 
and who he is. Not just that he is, but who he is. So this is exactly what God does for Jacob in verses 13 to 15. And I'm gonna linger here for a few minutes so that we can see how God displays his goodness to Jacob, okay? If the point is, how's the Lord reveal himself? He reveals himself by displaying his goodness. Well, I think he does that for Jacob in at least five ways, okay? So here we go. First, he shows Jacob the goodness of his identity. Look at verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it, the ladder, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. What's up with that? Is that just like, Religious jargon preamble, we the people. (laughs) No, what's he doing? Well, first he's asserting his divine identity. I am what? The Lord, the self-existent one. And then what is he adding to that? He's reminding Jacob of his divine activity. Who am I? What do I do? How do I roll? I'm the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. In other words, Jacob, I'm not Johnny come lately. I've been at work for generations, pal. I'm the God of your grandfather. I'm the God of your father. I'm a covenant-making God. I called them. I drew them into relationship with myself, and I have kept the promises, and I'm even now keeping the covenant I made with them by talking to you. He's asserting his identity and his activity. In other words, if you want to think of the connection between these things, it's God's redemptive activity that confirms his divine identity, and it's his divine identity that begets his redemptive activity. Okay, that's where God starts with Jacob. And I would argue that's precisely where God starts with us. He confronts us with his identity and his activity. Now, where does he do that? Here. Right here. To to read the Bible, we're not waiting for a dream. Do you realize that? Some of you have been waiting. Some of you are waiting for a dream. (laughs) You're thinking, I, purposeless, meaningless, I'm so right there with Jacob. Lord, I'm just, please one day would you just break in and like majorly convince me all that stuff I've ever heard is actually true. If you really want that, do you know what you'll do? You'll do what God told St. Augustine to do. Take up and read. That's what you'll do. Take up and read. Why? Because it's in God's word that he confronts us, friends, with both who he is and what he's done, right? And it's what the Bible teaches us about God's identity and activity that that reorient us to the reality of who he is in every situation, whether you're at work or at home or or even when you're suffering under the consequences of sin. So how does God reveal his goodness to Jacob? How does he display that? Well, first, he... He shows him the goodness of his identity. Second, he shows him the goodness of his mission. Look back at verse 13. Not just identity, but mission. The land on which you lie, talking to Jacob, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Do you know what that is? 
That is word for word nearly exactly what God told his grandfather Abraham he would do back in Genesis 13. Now, why is it word for word? Why say the same thing to Jacob? Well, it's simple. It's because the Lord's affirming to Jacob that Jacob, listen, pal, you're gonna experience and enjoy the blessings of my covenant with Abraham. And I have chosen you, Jacob, to mediate my blessing to the rest of the world. In other words, think about this. He's not just saying to Jacob, this is who I am, identity, and what I'm doing, activity. He's saying, Jacob, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing, and this is the role, this is the mission that I have given you to play in the redemptive story I am writing. It's not just, hi, Jacob, I'm out there busy. It's Jacob, I want to do something through you. He's confronting him with the goodness of his mission. What, what does that have to do with us? Jake, we got a mission. That's cool. I wish I had a mission. Well, you do. <laughs> you do, okay? The line of offspring that the Lord refers to in verse 14, who does that culminate in? Jesus Christ, right? Because it's in, it's in Jesus, the true Israel, the, the faithful son of God, that the Lord holds out to us the greatest blessing of all. What's that? Forgiveness, healing, and deliverance from sin and death. And when we receive that gift from the risen Christ through repentance and faith, what does he give us back? Having received that gift, what, what's he give us next? He gives you a mission. He gives us a purpose, a glorious mission that's, that's bound up in his mission. So think of it this way. If you're a Christian, your life is no longer about self-fulfillment for the purpose of self-actualization. That is what you were going to hear in every newspaper you read this week. Here's what your life is about, Christian. It's about self-denial for the purpose of divine exaltation. There's more to your life, in other words, than cleaning your house, going to class or, or earning a paycheck, okay? Today, more than anything else, is about what? It's about testifying with all your thoughts and words, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, that Jesus is real and good and mighty to save. That's your mission. So he showed Jacob the goodness of his identity. Second, his mission. Third, his presence. Look at verse 15. It just keeps getting better. Behold, I'm with you. Think about that. The Lord assures Jacob that he doesn't have to fulfill God's mission for his life alone. You know how scary that would be if God came to you and said, hey, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I'd be like, I don't know if I want that because I'm just trying to find blessing for myself and my kids. Draft somebody else. So it's, God cares for Jacob, right? So what does he say? I'm with you. You don't have to fulfill my mission for your life alone. Remember, what did the ladder back in verse 12 represent? This is where this is so important. It's, it's a point of access, right? Between what? Heaven and earth, the point at which the kingdom of God invades the kingdom of this world. Do you realize that's the opposite of what happened at Babel in Genesis 11? What were they trying to do back then? Make a way to get from earth to heaven. By the way, in case you're curious how that turned out, read Genesis 11, it didn't go well. 
And the point is what? We don't achieve access to the divine through the activity of man. We receive access to the, the divine as a gift from God. That's the point. And, and Jesus himself makes an, a remarkable allusion to this latter. Look at this verse with me. John 1 verse 51. Jesus says this. And anytime you hear him go, truly, truly, that's like, listen up, listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is the spiritual ladder to which Jacob's physical ladder pointed. Jesus is the ladder. Jesus is the access point between what? God and man. Jesus is the one in whom the kingdom of God invades the kingdom of this world. There's, there's no other path to relationship with God. There's no other way to commune with God. There's no other possibility for you ever encountering God or God being revealed to you today than in Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 you don't need a dream, friend. You don't need good works. You don't need to go to church. You don't need to put more money in the, the offering basket. You don't need to clean up your language. You need Jesus. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So if you're a Christian and you're trusting Jesus to cleanse you from your sins and bring you to the Father, then know this, okay? God is with you. God's with you, and he's with you in a greater way than he was with Jacob. Why? Because the Spirit of God himself has taken up residence in you. Think about that. For Jacob, Bethel was the place he met God. Hey, let's meet God. Let's drive to Bethel. Today, Jesus is the place we meet God, right? He's the temple. And through, through the gift of his spirit, he, he transforms his followers into temples of the living God. And he binds us together through covenant membership in a local church that's really important, by the way, that testifies to his corporate presence in our midst. We become the temple of God too. And so in light of the goodness of his presence, what do we do? We say with Psalm 46, 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of who? Jacob. The with us God. The Emmanuel God. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Remember that, Christian. Remember that. May, may what Jacob declared in verse 16, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. Never be said of you. Because God's with you always. Fourth way. God displays his goodness to Jacob and us. He shows him the goodness of his protection. His protection. What does the Lord say to Jacob? Back to verse 15. I am with you and I will what? I will keep you. I will keep you. What's that? That's a promise to guard Jacob. To protect Jacob. To provide for Jacob with the end result that what? No one can snatch Jacob out of the father's hands. Do you realize that's your inheritance in Christ too? If you're in Christ, no one can snatch you out of his hands. 
So what do we do? We say with Psalm 121 verse 5, the Lord is our keeper, right? The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you, protect you, guard you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. For the sake of time, think of it this way. If you're in Christ, you couldn't be more secure. He's a keeping God. Lastly, he shows Jacob the goodness of his guidance. His guidance. Remember, this guy's a young man who's been exiled, sent out from everything he's ever known. So if you look at verse 15, these words had to have been especially comforting. Jacob, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What's that promise include? Previous sentence, I will bring you back to this land. I'll bring you back. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you too are in exile. You're a stranger. This, this world is not your home. And being in exile, being a stranger, living in a place that is not your true home is really hard and really painful. By the way, so were the next 20 years of Jacob's life. We'll get there. So what does the Lord promise him? How, how does the Lord sustain our faith in a painful life of exile? What does he say? Jacob, Christian, I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to bring you home. If, if you're in Christ, friend, there is a glorious homecoming awaiting you. It's waiting for you. It's, it's already been received by all the saints that have gone before us. And this homecoming will surely happen for the simple reason that God is faithful. Look back at verse 15. This is the reason why Jacob, no less than you and I, could, could lean the entire weight of his life on the Lord's identity, mission, presence, protection, and guidance. End of verse 15. What does he say? For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So what's he doing for Jacob and us? He is saying, if you were ever tempted to doubt the goodness of my identity, my mission, presence, protection, guidance. There's a reason we only have three points typically. It's hard to track five. But if you're ever tempted to doubt those things, I mean, not that we are. We do. Where do we go? Verse 15, we go to the integrity and truthfulness of the promises of God. That's where we go. In other words, God can no more fail to keep his promises, to do all those good things that he just showed Jacob, than he could fail to be God. That's what we hang our hat on. So how does the Lord reveal himself? He reveals himself by displaying his goodness. Okay, let's end with question three. Why does the Lord reveal himself? Why does he, why does he do all this in the first place? If he does it when we least expect it, and if he does it by displaying his goodness, why does he do this? Point three, the Lord reveals himself to secure our devotion. He's after something. He surprised Jacob 
big time. He broke into his life, realigned a sense of what was real and true. Verse 15, what did Jacob say? Behold, surely the Lord is in this place. So, so how did he respond? Well, verses 17 to 22 tell the rest of the story. What, what do we learn next about Jacob? And he was afraid, we'll come back to that, and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God or Bethel, house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Now, does that surprise you? You're confronted with the five things, right? And his first response is what? Fear. Jacob was filled with fear. Now that's not a scared or run for your life kind of fear, okay? That's a reverent fear. That's a trembling fear, a, a reorienting, amazed kind of response to the glory of God kind of fear. And, and that's the right response, right? There's a, there's a good fear of the Lord, a necessary fear of the Lord. Why was that especially necessary for Jacob at this point in his life? Well, think about it. Why was he on the journey to begin with? Because he was afraid of who? Esau. The whole impetus for his journey was his fear of Esau. So what happened to Jacob? What was God securing by revealing his goodness, displaying his goodness to Jacob? He was securing his devotion. He was securing his fear, his loyalty. What, what kind of vow does Jacob make? Look at this, verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then what? The Lord shall be my God. So what's the logic? Okay. There's some people that argue this kind of if God this, then I'll do this is, is a kind of cold calculating bargaining with God nonsense on Jacob's part. I thoroughly disagree with that. Why? Why? Because the if-then way of thinking is the entire logic of God's whole self-revelation. It's the whole structure of a covenant. What? Jacob, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is how I'm protecting, providing, guiding, Here's a mission for you. I'm with you. That's all the if, given all of that. It's meant to have an effect on his life. It's not just, hello, Jacob. Here's me and all my goodness. That's the if. But there's a then. There's a goal. He's not just revealing himself to the guy for the sake of revealing himself. He's revealing himself in order to elicit a response of wholehearted devotion from us as his people. He's after that. So what's Jacob do? Well, he expresses his devotion by, by consecrating a memorial stone. That's verse 18. He expresses his devotion by consecrating his possessions. That's verse 22. But you know what the single most important thing that gets consecrated here is? It's Jacob. Then the Lord shall be my God. Or if you translate that literally in Hebrew, then the Lord shall be to me. God. It's that dramatic. And friend, 
God, please hear this. He's after the exact same thing today from you and me. He's after your heart. He's not just after your expectations of when he'll break in. He's not just after your convictions, who you believe he is. He's after your affections, your loyalty, your consecration, what what you treasure and love and worship, what, what you serve as your functional God. If you were at the parenting seminar this past week and you heard Dr. Tripp say again and again, it's like Bob Dylan, you gotta serve somebody. We're all worshiping. We're all loving something. We're all looking to something and saying, be God to me. Deliver goodness to me. We do that with physical comfort, financial success, our reputation. God was after Jacob's affections. And so I warn you, friend, please hear this. The fact that the Lord is God doesn't mean he's your God. The fact that the Lord is your parents' God doesn't mean he's your God. The fact that the Lord is exalted and has been worshipped by people around you in this church this morning does not mean he is your God. The most important question you will ever answer is, will the Lord God be my God? Or will something else be God? You will not answer ever a more important question. Because, because God has, he's revealed himself in Jesus. He's shown us his goodness in Jesus. Not, not just so that we could think nice thoughts about Jesus or have feelings of gratitude toward Jesus, but rather so we would be compelled in view of Jesus' glory and goodness to say, Jesus, all that I am, all that I have, my time, my thoughts, my possessions, my obedience, my affections, my love, it's all yours. That's the goal. That's what it means for the Lord to be your God. It's to make Jesus the object of your complete loyalty. So why does the Lord reveal himself? To secure your devotion. That's the goal. To conclude, friends, Jacob started out in a certain place. It was a meaningless place in a psychological sense, it actually turned out to be near the large Canaanite city of Luz, which tells us what? Nothing is random in scripture. That means it wasn't just a psychologically meaningless place. It was also in a spiritual sense, a very worldly place. That's where he found himself. Psychologically meaningless, spiritually worldly, but by the grace of God, when God revealed himself, when God broke in, what did that place become? What did that moment in his life become? It became Beth-El, the house of God, the place of God. Friends, that is precisely what Jesus wants to turn your present situation in your life into right now. The place of God, God's place, because he's still in the business of what? breaking in to our meaningless and worldly lives in order to reveal his goodness and secure your devotion. So so I invite you today, friend. I charge you today, come to Christ. 
come to Christ and keep on turning from sin and coming to Christ every day of your life. Why? Because it's in Christ and Christ alone that God pierces our darkness, God reveals his goodness, and he secures our affection. Hebrews 1 verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, dreams included, visions included, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. He has revealed himself to us. He is making known himself to us by his son. If you came here this morning looking to encounter God, don't wait for a dream. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that right now you would do in our hearts the very thing that you broke in to do in Jacob. Thank you that you reveal yourself when we least expect it. When we feel most unworthy of it. And when you do, Like you said to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Jesus, thank you that that's where you start. Thank you that before you warn us away from sin and death with the real threats of your judgment, you woo us with the invitation of your steadfast love and mercy. Thank you for doing that, Lord, by, by showing us your identity, who you are, your mission, what you're doing, including through us, for giving us your presence, your protection, and your guidance. Lord Jesus, we pray that all of the spiritual blessings that you bought with your precious blood would not be purchased in vain but that you would receive the reward of your suffering and that what you came to do would right now and every day for the rest of our lives be accomplished in our hearts. King Jesus, win our affections. Capture our loyalty. Retain our devotion. We thank you that you are not just the God of old, dead, white people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whatever color we're prone to assign them, Lord, you are God today, right now. Thank you for making a way of living access to you through Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.